Well, good morning to you all, and uh, thank you very much, Pastor Neil, for the opportunity and privilege to participate in your worship this morning. Uh, it was mentioned that I've been speaking these last few days at um, a conference for, uh, concerning faith and the public space, Christianity in the public space, and uh, I thought that uh, it would be a good idea for me, in a certain sense, in the, in the course of a single sermon, to give you a taste of what all of that was about, what uh, you missed, to, to uh, get a sense of how we were talking about the gospel and culture. So that's my topic this morning, gospel culture and what it means to live in God's kingdom. The great question that I think confronts the Christian church today across the West, the fundamental most important question is this one. What is the relationship of God's word revelation to our real life in the world? This is the question that Christians are being forced to uh, ask and answer in a new way uh, in our time. The passage that we've had read to us from Colossians 1 is one of those programmatic uh, passages, one of those programmatic statements of the Apostle Paul that in many respects summarizes the incredible scope of the gospel and in particular the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his role. And we have to ask ourselves, really, when we say, what is the relationship of that word revelation to our real life in the world? If this is true, if he's the image of the invisible God, everything created by him, all things being created through him and for him, being before all things, all things holding together in him, Christ having first place in a few things, in everything, A life that was once alienated now being restored to God in Jesus Christ and being a servant of the gospel. What are the implications of all of that? And have we really, and we're being confronted in a new way in our time as to how much we've really thought that through and how much we're really ready, ready to apply it to our lives. So the great question I think is, God's word revelation, what it says about the Lord Jesus Christ and his claims. Paul the Apostle summarizes this elsewhere, actually, in Romans 11:36, He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. God is in Christ reconciling the world, everything, to himself. There's nothing in heaven or on earth that he didn't create that wasn't made through him, that wasn't made for him. So when you start thinking about a Christian world and life view, that is the lenses through which you look at the world in light of the claims of Jesus Christ, what are the implications of that? And they are incredibly far-reaching. So this, Colossians 1, constitutes in many respects the Christian's first principle. This is what we feed on. This is what nourishes our minds and our hearts. This is who Jesus Christ is really is. These are our first principles. Now, noted, just going to skip through here, a noted apologist, interesting looking fellow. Anybody heard of G.K. Chesterton? Christian apologist, wrote an important book called Orthodoxy, but a number of others. 
He said this, the man who thinks without proper first principles goes mad. The man who thinks without proper first principles goes mad. And he said this uh, in a, his criticism, in his discussion of a German philosopher who's very well known called Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a, a philosopher, nihilistic philosopher, who really believed that God was dead for us. God was irrelevant, was now irrelevant to life. And he tried in his thinking to work out consistently the implications of a denial of the Christian God. What would life really mean? What would it look like? How would we think? How would we live if this God did not exist? So Nietzsche actually said, no God, no grammar. There can be no laws or norms ultimately in a world uh, without God. Chesterton says, no, the man who thinks without proper first principles goes mad. If you know anything about the story of Nietzsche, you know that he ended his life insane. He literally did go mad. And I think his philosophy, his attempt to live consistently with his first principles drove him insane. Now, the tragedy, the challenge and the tragedy of our cultural moment today is that this word, the first principles, Colossians 1, this has ceased to be the word, the driving motive, the religious force that is giving shape to our culture. This is no longer the case. Rather, our own will, our own autonomous desires are being permitted to rule, to determine truth and justice, and therefore the direction of life in Western culture today over against Christian claims. There's a Canadian thinker, he's dead now, um, considered a conservative a philosopher in many respects, believed in God, but was in no sense a Christian as we would understand it. His name was George Grant, and he did understand well the situation, the mindset of the Western world. And uh, his thinking is described by one of his biographers, and this is, this is descriptive, it's indicative of where our culture is. He put it this way, justice, and you could use justice or truth there, this is what he's talking about, is understood to be something strictly human, having nothing to do with obedience to any divine command or conformity to any pattern laid up in heaven. Moral principles, like all other social conventions, are something made on earth. Human freedom requires that the principles of justice be the product of human agreement or consent, that is, they must be the result of a contract. And these principles must therefore be rooted in an understanding of the interests of human beings as individuals rather than in any sense of duty or obligation to anything above humanity. The terms of the contract may well change as circumstances and interests change, but the restraints free individuals accept must always be horizontal in character rather than vertical. I grant that's a lot for a Sunday morning. What's he saying? He's saying very simply, we no longer believe in a transcendent authority, something that, uh, to which we are accountable, something above us in terms of truth or justice, that we think about human life and society and culture purely in contractual terms. We've got all these free, autonomous individuals, and what we will do together, the way we will live together, will just be the result of a contract. 
we will uh, come to a certain uh, arrangement, but that contract can be updated and changed as interests change. So if we want to change our minds about human identity, marriage, human sexuality, truth, justice, etc., etc., we can just update the contract. We're not accountable to anything above us. There's no vertical, there's only horizontal accountability, you see? So you have, instead of a vertical objectivity, you only have horizontal relativity. And this has meant that we have been conferring on ourselves as a culture all kinds of contractual rights in the last 20 years or so, especially the last 15 or 20 years. Just here's a few of them. We've uh, given ourselves by contract the right to redefine our gender irrespective of creational chromosomes, the right to murder, to abortion, the right to polygamy, homosexuality, bestiality, parts of Europe, polygamy, or any sexual predilection, really. The right to suicide, the right to euthanasia. That's happening in Belgium now with children. They're talking about it in Canada. The elderly, the sick, the right to the redefinition of marriage, the right to prostitution and pornography, the right to suppress worship of the living God and increasingly the free speech of Christians. If you'd have been at the conference, you'd have heard a lot about that, the right to blasphemy and so on and so forth. And so we've been in a process of repealing Christian law in the West for about 50 or 60 years, since the end of World War II. And that has uh, brought us to a position of cultural crisis. All this is done in the name of human dignity, and human dignity in the West today means absolute autonomy. Absolute autonomy. The famous and noted historian Jacob Burkhardt said we live in an era of revolutions, an era of revolutions, and he predicted, quote, a radically egalitarian democracy would not lead to individual liberty and responsibility, but to a pretentious mediocrity and a new type of despotism. A pretentious mediocrity and a new type of despotism. So few people would be willing to deny that there is a crisis in culture today. Western moral principles are shifting like sand underneath us. There's a, and then there's a metamorphosis of the Christian church's relationship to the world, to the culture. Many Christians don't quite know where the church fits or stands anymore in relationship to the culture. People are trying to renegotiate their relationship to Christianity in the West altogether. So we're in a time when the relationship, understanding the relationship of a scriptural gospel of the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ to the culture has never been more vital in the Western church. Perhaps in 1500 years have we not seen this kind of cultural crisis where the question needs to be asked, what is the relationship of God's word revelation to my real life in the world? Not just the life of my ideas between my two ears, or even the life inside of the four walls of a church building, but to the totality of our lives in every aspect. So we have 
a crisis in culture. Now, when we talk about culture, it's important to clarify what we mean. Lots of people talk about culture. It's a very overused word. Business culture, arts culture, political culture, gay culture, and on and on and on. What is culture? What do we mean when we talk about it? Well, if we go back to the origin of the word, um, in Latin, cultere, there's a relationship to our English words here, culture and agriculture. We have a Latin root that is related to cultus, cultus, which means worship. We still retain, actually, this use of the word culture, cult, in the word cult that we use for the Jehovah's Witnesses, say, or the Mormons. We talk about the cults. They're cults. They're forms of worship. Culture, ultimately, is about worship. In fact, culture is perhaps best understood as the public manifestation of the ground motive, that is the worship, the driving force of a people. Culture is a state of being that is cultivated by an intellectual and moral tilling that goes on in all of our lives in terms of the prevailing cultus. So whether you realize it or not, your education, the laws of the country, the books you read, the films you watch, your family environment, all of those things are communicating to you the ground motive, the essential worship of the culture in terms of the culture. So there's an overarching world and life view that is being constantly inculcated. Now just tune into uh, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You can hear it there or the BBC. You can hear it in news media. You certainly hear it in the universities. The cultus is a communitarian thing. It's transmitted through the family, through education, through law, through the arts, through all the varied institutions of cultural life. I think probably the most important Christian philosopher of the 20th century was a man named Hermann Doeverd. He's a Dutchman. I'm sure you've all read his book. Roots of Western Culture and the Twilight of Western Thought and so on. Put your hand up if you haven't read it. Don't be ashamed. Shame on you. Put your hands down. <laughs> the, the, the religious ground motive of a culture, he says, can never be ascertained from the ideas and personal faith of the individual. It is truly a communal motive that governs the individual even when one is not consciously aware of it or acknowledges it. This is why we can be constantly shaped, uh, and our young people are constantly shaped by everything that's going on around them, and then we can be shocked, shocked by, the, trans, by the, the, the change in their thinking. Now, let me just prove this to you in a much more down-to-earth way. If you go to Saudi Arabia or Pakistan today, my parents lived and worked in Pakistan for 17 years. What kind of a culture are you going to experience in Saudi Arabia or Pakistan? I'll tell you, Islamic culture. Islamic culture. It's there in the dress code, the hijab, the burqa. It's there in the diet, halal food. It's there in the law, Sharia law. It's there in the education from the Mulvies and the Muftis and in the madrasas. It's there in the architecture. It's there in every aspect of the life of the people. If you go to much of India today, still, what kind of culture do you encounter? 
Hindu culture for the most part. Hindu culture. And how do you encounter it? You see it there in the dress. You see it in the temples. You see it in the... Uh, you see it reflected in the diet of the people. And, and, and in India, you actually see it even in the surnames because in Hinduism, uh, the social order is governed traditionally by the caste system. The caste system has the untouchable class at the bottom. This is to do with the reincarnation and what they believe about the cycles of life. The caste system has the untouchables at the bottom and the Brahmin priestly class at the top. And that will govern the kind of job you can get. If you go to Tibet today, what kind of a culture will you encounter? Uh, mainly a Buddhist culture. If you, go to, if you go to North Korea, what kind of a culture do you encounter? A Marxist culture. Now, if you come to Australia, England, Canada, maybe slightly less so the United States, but still increasingly so, what kind of a culture do you encounter now? People used to think it was Christian, that they were coming to a Christian culture. Now it's really a secular humanistic culture that displays the cultural vestiges of Christianity. That is the artifacts, the cultural artifacts of Christianity. Old churches everywhere. In Toronto, many of them are Hare Krishna centers, condominiums, uh, cafeterias, and apartment buildings. Toronto, where I live, uh, used to be called Toronto the Good, the city of churches. Nobody locked their doors. There wasn't any crime, hardly. 75% of people were in church. I'm not saying they were all Christians, really. But they were shaped by the cultus. Right? They, the tilling of their minds and hearts was in terms of a Christian world and life view. So perhaps the, um, the best definition of culture that I can think of is that of Henry Van Til. Maybe you take this one home with you. Culture is just religion externalized. It's your applied beliefs. Culture is religion externalized. Whether you're in Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Australia, India, it's that which is formed and shaped by the prevailing cultus. Okay, well, that's maybe a sociological observation. What does the Bible really tell us about the direction of culture? Let's think about the direction of culture for a minute. In biblical categories, culture is what human beings make with God's creation. Culture is what human beings make with God's creation in terms of a particular view of reality. You're sat on a piece of culture right now. People always, didn't always sit in chairs like these. This building is a reflection of a particular view of culture. And uh, the way we set up our worship service says something about what's most important and what, what's most central to what we're doing. So in the scriptures, our first parents were set in the garden of God as his royal priests. That's what they were. They were a kingly priesthood in the garden of God, set there to worship and to serve, to cultivate creation in terms of true worship. That was their calling. 
That was their purpose, to develop all things under God. It began with the tending of the garden. And as Genesis goes on, you see the animal husbandry and then metallurgy and so forth. It all begins to develop. Culture is what human beings do as image bearers with God's creation. And this command to turn creation into a God-glorifying culture has never been rescinded. The theologian Herman Bavink, don't be scared, uh, he said this, Genesis 1.26, he said, it teaches us that God had a purpose in creating man in his image, namely that man should have dominion. Now, if we comprehend the force of this subduing or dominion under the term of culture, we can say that culture in its broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after his image. You think God created you so that you could uh, exist here for a short while and then in a disembodied state go and live in heaven? It's not a biblical view of human beings. That's a Greek view. It's a Greek philosophical view of the human person. It's not a scriptural view of the human person. Human beings are made for this creation. This is your home. And by the way, this is the only creation there is ever going to be. It's going to be released from its bondage to corruption, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and cleansed. And our bodies will be glorified. But the incarnation of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus affirmed forever the goodness of God's creation. The physical resurrection of Jesus. So in its broadest sense, a human being is a cultural being, a worshipping being, a cult of the cultus, a worshipping being forming culture. And the only question is, what direction are we going to do that in? That's the, that's the biblical question. This is the question of sin and redemption, of rebellion and obedience, of culture keeping or culture, of covenant keeping or covenant breaking. There's an antithesis then in cultural life. The Apostle Paul makes this crystal clear, Romans chapter 1. He basically tells us there's only two ultimate forms of approach to culture. In all the diversity of cultural differences, he says there's only two ways of looking at it. There's the worship and service of the creator, Romans 1, or there's the worship and service of the creature. So Paul, in his description of the Gentile world, says they have exchanged the truth about God for the lie. What is the lie? It's right there in the book of Genesis has God really said? No. You will not surely die. You will be as gods, knowing or determining for yourself what the truth really is. So Paul says they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and have worshipped and served the creature, the creature, something created, the philosophies of men, from the totem pole right to the ideal constructs of the Greek philosophers, they've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then he goes on to talk about the cultural implications, interestingly enough, in human sexuality, of exchanging the truth about God for the lie. You read Romans 1 for yourself this afternoon. One rests on the worship of the creator, other worship of the creation. And it follows then for Paul that there is no such thing as a neutral culture. There's no neutral institution. There's no neutral cultural activity. Neutral, neuter, to be neither one thing nor another. You either worship the living God or you don't. 
you're not worshipping the living God, the Bible has a word for that, idolatry. Something else is put in the place of God. So you're not the poor evangelical religious nutcase while everybody else in Melbourne is neutral. No, you're a worshipper of the living God and other people, if they don't worship the living God through Jesus Christ, are in the grip of idolatry. There isn't any middle ground. Now you might say, well, that's all very interesting, Joe, but, well, you may not say that, but I'm hoping you are. Uh, but, you, you, but you would say, you might say to yourself, well, Christians and unbelievers do lots of the same things, don't they? Don't unbelievers also get married and build families and build educational institutions and make films and do arts and read books and do engineering and so on and so forth? What's the real difference? And this brings us to an important distinction that I want to talk about briefly, structure and direction. Structure and direction. Let's take two examples. First, music and then marriage. The structure of something concerns the creational laws or norms, the ordained pattern that pertain to that thing by virtue of creation. And of course, the word of God, this inscripturated word of God, there's the creation word of God, and then there's the inscripturated word of God. Never forget that Jesus Christ is your creator before he's your redeemer. He's the creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. This is exactly the message of Paul in Colossians 1. The structure of something concerns God's creational laws and norms. The direction of these things concerns the religious orientation that they have. So take music as one example. That's Lady Gaga at the top there, if you didn't know. And that's not her brother, that is Johann Sebastian Bach. Okay, great reformational composer. Now, both Lady Gaga and Johann Sebastian Bach are using the same C major and B flat. There's not a different, there's not a different B flat for Lady Gaga, it's the same structure. But who would deny that the direction of Lady Gaga's music is significantly different from the direction, the orientation of the music of Johann Sebastian Bach? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there's something wrong with uh, popular music in, uh, in and of itself. Right? You can have, there, there are a Christ, variety of Christian forms of music. Um, this is an illustration. There are many structures within creation, you see, but there are only two directions. We're either oriented toward God or toward idolatry in marriage, family, church, state, art, science, business, every sphere of life. We will either seek to serve and glorify God or we'll have no central place for Christ and his word revelation. So Paul the Apostle emphasizes this when he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, even in the most mundane, in other words, things of life, do it all for the glory of God. Everything. So this distinction between structure and direction is very important because in the Christian world and life, you don't just have a good creation, you then have a problem that enters into creation. What do theologians call that? The fall. The problem of sin. The problem of rebellion against God and our alienation from God. And the issue is not simply that you and I, because of our sin, are alienated from a personal relationship with God. The issue is that people who are 
in rebellion against God, then seek to alienate God's creation from him. Their culture-making moves in an idolatrous and rebellious direction. Let's take the marriage example. So I gave an illustration from music. Let me give you a more homely illustration. Marriage. Well, the structure of marriage is the same as it's been from the beginning of creation. And that's not on my authority. That's Jesus' authority. When Jesus is asked a question about marriage, he says, marriage and divorce, he says it was not this way. But at the beginning of creation, he says, from the beginning of creation, this is what God wanted. God made them male and female. When Jesus is asked about marriage, he doesn't say, well, now let me just do a brief survey of the Greco-Roman world and, our, and the current perspective on marriage. And we've got these polygamous arrangements, and then we've got pederasty over here, and, and we need to accommodate and think through and look at the different arrangements that pertain. In our, no, he said, from the beginning of creation, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined, let no man put asunder. So, the structure of creation, uh, of marriage, is the same. But, who would doubt that the direction of a Christian marriage is altogether different? So, the legal structure of an unbeliever's marriage may be very much the same as our own. But the direction of a Christian marriage is different. How many unbelieving marriages say would say that the essence of the Christian marriage is that we submit to one another as unto the Lord. That, that, how many unbelievers would, would say, yes, my role as a husband is to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, sanctifying her by the washing of the word, presenting her holy, blameless. How many unbelieving wives would say, part of my task as a Christian wife is to respect and submit to my husband. Ooh, don't say anything like that in our culture today. That's not my teaching. So the direction of marriage is different. Now, as a pastor, somebody who's been involved in pastoral ministry and pastor the church for many years, and my colleague Trevor is one of the pastors at Westminster, we as pastors have had people come to us and say, My marriage failed. Now we know what they mean. But was it marriage that failed? Or was it the issue of sin in our hearts that led to the breakdown of the relationship? So it's not that God's pattern for marriage has failed. In the same way, we wouldn't look at a failed state and say, ah, look, Venezuela, that just shows you civil government is unnecessary. Let's get rid of civil government. No, we would say we need to reform and renew the state. Marriage needs reform, renewal. If you've got a corrupt court, you don't say, ah, yeah, let's just dispense with judges and courts. We don't need them. No, we want just courts. So this is the difference between structure and direction. God has all kinds of structures for creation. The issue is their direction. And that illustrates for us that the challenges we're facing in our culture today are at root religious challenges. It's fundamentally about faith. And this is what almost all the social commentators miss as they talk about this problem and that problem and the other issue and all these sociological causes. They miss the root of the issue, which is true worship or idolatry. So let's think, this is my final point, but it has a couple of sub-points, so don't get too excited. 
the transformation of culture. Transformation of culture. In view of this, it's actually clear that implicit within the Christian gospel, the evangel, the good news, the declaration that Jesus is Lord and Savior, implicit within that is a particular vision of culture, of cultus. The gospel is a culture because it's centered in the worship of the living God through Jesus Christ. So, let me give you my syllogism. Let me give you my, let me summarize the argument for you. This is from a quotation from my book, Gospel Culture. I'm told that that fellow is the best-looking apologist in North America. Um, anyway, this is, this is a citation from Gospel Culture. But listen, this is the argument I've given you. There's two premises and a conclusion. Here they are. If culture is the public expression of the worship of a people, that was my first premise, and the gospel restores man to true worship, that is, of the creator, not the creature, then the gospel restores man to true culture, which has a name in the Bible. It's called the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of God. And actually, this is what we're called to pray for. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? Oh, what a shock. On earth as it is in heaven. This isn't rocket science. Culture is the public expression of the worship of the people. The Christian gospel calls us back to true worship. Therefore, it restores true culture, which the Bible calls the kingdom of God. Jesus pre came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. So the gospel restores us to our original calling to worship and to serve, and it begins with the regeneration of our hearts. To be reborn. Think about all the re-words that we use, that the Bible uses, and that theologians use, and we describe salvation, reconciliation, reconciliation, redemption, renewal, rebirth. So Paul says in Colossians 1, Christ, he's the image of the invisible God. And then Paul also tells us we are being conformed. We are now in Christ being conformed to the image of his son. So Christ is the perfect image of God. And in the gospel, you're being restored into Christ's image. So whose image are you being restored into? The image of God. It's being restored in us by the gospel. And as image bearers, we bear God's image, that is God's will and purpose for creation, to creation, to the totality of our life in the world. That's what redemption means. It's not your immortal soul going to heaven. That's another Greek concept. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven into the earth, so the dwelling place of God is with men. When there's a renewed heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. So we have a calling and a task. Now, if we've got a calling and a task, if what I've just said is true, and it is, and everybody has the right to my opinion, then that was a joke. Since the so-called enlightenment, since the so-called enlightenment, Christians have steadily surrendered the various organs of culture. And the Enlightenment was a period of, the, of, of continuing the Renaissance to recover the basic ideas of Greek philosophy. And steadily what we've done is 
we have retreated from one area of cultural life after another with the seasoning impact of the gospel. We have to accept that to some degree, the condition of our culture today is because of the apostasy of Christians, the Christian family, the Christian church from our cultural task. And we've retreated into a pietistic bubble concerned largely with eternal verities and keeping souls from hell and have limited the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ and his word to the institutional church. We've said this is a church book. We've ecclesiasticized the word of God. Things going on in Australia right now about Christians broadcasting or saying things in public about certain issues like the gender issue and the attempt to criminalize that, or at least it to be uh, either a criminal or civil offense, if somebody is culturally offended, doesn't feel culturally safe by something that you say. How long do you think it's going to be before somebody sitting in a church can go and make a complaint and say, the pastor made me feel culturally unsafe, told me to repent? It's pretty culturally unsafe, isn't it? turn from the worship of all idols to the worship of the true and living God, that's very culturally unsafe. So the more we ecclesiasticize the Bible, the more privatized our faith has become, and, and therefore the religion of the culture of the public space has changed. And then we act shocked. So the marginalization of the Christian church has meant a change of religion in the public space. So if we love God and our neighbor, if we love our neighbor and we truly love Christ, a full-orbed gospel, this cosmos-renewing gospel, will be important to us. The truth, beauty, and majesty of the gospel and the lordship of Jesus Christ and his kingdom will be important to us in every area of life. And this concern for transformation, not just of the individual, but of cultures and nations, is everywhere found in Scripture. Just think very quickly, and I'm almost there, just hang on. I'll be gone soon. Right? The, the Bible is filled with this concern. The transformation of kings and kingdoms. Think about Moses and his confrontation with Pharaoh. Moses didn't say, well, Lord, um, I'm a bit concerned about this uh, project of yours because spiritual leaders don't confront political leaders. Separation of church and state. Pharaoh was regarded as a living God by the Egyptians. He was son of the sun god Ra. And it was a confrontation. That whole encounter between Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues on Egypt was a standoff between two divinity concepts. The God, the living God of Israel, or the God of Egypt. And it took ten plagues for Pharaoh to let the people go. And even then he changed his mind. What about uh, Nathan confronting King David for his adultery? Elijah confronting Ahab over his lawless theft of family property. Daniel's confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel held office in Babylon. He was a politician in Babylon, a very senior one. But his witness to the truth was so faithful that eventually Nebuchadnezzar confesses the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Do you know that the 
the king of Babylon, the most powerful man on earth at that time, is actually converted, and in Daniel 4, 34 and 37, declares of God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. That was the king of Babylon. What about Jonah? Jonah was sent to the heart of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh. And after his reluctant evangelistic campaign, there's national repentance from the monarch down. He's the most dejected, successful evangelist in the history of the covenant people. Amos, Amos prophesies to the pagan nations all around Israel, not just to Israel. Nehemiah petitions the king of Persia for the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. Esther intervenes with Xerxes on behalf of the people. John the Baptist confronts Herod for rejecting God's design for marriage, and he loses his head for it. Some of us are not prepared to take a scolding for defending God's design for marriage. The Apostle Peter confronted the Jewish Sanhedrin with the ultimate authority of Christ and his determination to obey God, not men, when they told him to stop preaching. The Apostle Paul confronts the Athenian court, Festus, Agrippa, Felix, and appeals his case all the way to Caesar. And he confronts them all with the lordship and gospel of Jesus Christ. To the point where some of them are trembling on their thrones, according to the book of Acts. Jesus himself calls Herod Antipas a fox, a deceiver, and he says to Pontius Pilate at his own trial, you would have no authority over me, save it were given to you from above. Why would these servants of God and even the Lord Jesus himself be concerned with speaking to the powers that be? Well, the clue is given to us in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rebel and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, this is the great messianic psalm. Take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So now be wise. Receive instruction. Be wise. So now kings be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. It's not very politically correct, is it? You know, nowhere does God take a referendum on the identity of his son. There's no vote on the claims of Jesus Christ. Demos kratos. You know what democracy means? People, power. It's not the power of the 
decides what truth and justice is, according to the Christian world and life view. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of Kings. Revelations 1.5 says he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and his kingship is total, it's absolute, it's objective reality, whether men like it or not. Now you might say, oh, this sounds incredibly arrogant. Well, Jesus said this in the Great Commission. We often misquote the Great Commission. If you ask a Christian what the Great Commission is, they typically say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, yes, that's true, but we miss the preface. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Paul said the same thing in Colossians 1 in our reading. It all belongs to him. Therefore, it's because of his authority that you can go and make disciples of the nations, baptize them and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's because of the identity of Jesus Christ. All things are being made subject to him. So in sum, and this is my conclusion, all worship, lordship, and sovereignty either belongs to Christ, the transcendent source of truth and justice, or we will find the God concept in creation itself. We worship and serve the creature or the creator. And G.K. Chesterton, I'll end where I started, pointed out the consequences of that choice. It is only by believing in God that we can ever criticize the government. Abolish God and the government becomes the God. That fact is written across all human history. Wherever the people do not believe in something beyond the world, they will worship the world. But above all, they will worship the strongest thing in the world. The challenge before us in our own time is Christ or Caesar, just as it was for the early church. Are we going to be faithful to Christ and his kingdom and his claims? Are we going to serve the kingdom of Jesus Christ and love and serve our neighbor in terms of his kingdom? Or are we going to compromise? We will worship either the triune creator or we'll worship the creature by absolutizing some aspect of creation. I just want to encourage you this morning that Jesus is still king. He is fully God. He's fully man. And yes, his judgment is on our nations. His justice is manifest even now in what's going on in our nations. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And the prophet promises us of the increase of his government and of his peace there shall be no end. Despite everything that's going on in the culture, if we will be faithful, we are assured of this promise, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the guarantee Paul gives us in Philippians 2 is this, that all men and nations finally will bow at the feet of Jesus. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We have the privilege, the incredible joy and privilege, of participating in people's willing submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to discover their true humanity, to what it means to be human in him. We have the privilege of participating in the reconciliation of all things to God in Jesus Christ. 
God was in Christ, Paul says, reconciling the world to himself, and he has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is our joy. That is our privilege. The gospel is a culture. It's called the kingdom of God.